You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. My usual co-host, Wade Bearden, is not going to be on hand today. He is on travel. So instead, we've got a special guest filling his chair across the table from me. We're going to be talking about two films for you this week. The first is Claire Denis' sci-fi space existential exploration, High Life. And then we're going to be taking a look at Penny Lane's newest documentary concerning the Satanic Temple titled Hail Satan. All that's coming up on episode 198 of Seeing and Believing. So we're here on episode 198 of Seeing and Believing and As I mentioned earlier, we don't have Wade Bearden here with us this week. He is on travel, so it's just going to be me and a special guest that I'm really excited to have on the show with us, Dave Canfield. Dave lived for 28 years as a member of a large Christian commune on the north side of Chicago. While there, he became a writer and speaker on the subject of culture and faith, eventually becoming a film critic who specializes in horror film. He's a founding member of Screen Anarchy, the world's largest blog for world cinema and strange little movies that fall between the cracks, and he has contributed chapters to books such as Yuletide Terror, Christmas Horror on Film and Television, and Satanic Panic, Pop Culture Paranoia in the 1980s. Lately, you can hear him on iTunes, delivering bi-weekly episodes of his film podcast, Mind Frames. Dave, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm really glad to have you here. I am super excited to be here. <laughs> we, we are excited for a lot of different reasons. One of them <laughs> is that this is actually going to be the first uh, formal episode of the podcast where the two hosts are actually in the same physical space. Uh, listeners know that Wade and I normally record uh, remotely. He's in Texas. I'm in Chicago. Dave, being based in Chicago, is here in the flesh. So Actually not far from you, and we get along well enough that we can be in the same room. So this is great. <laughs> Go us. <laughs> so uh, we've got a really special episode for you this week. We are going to be reviewing Penny Lane's new documentary, Hail Satan, in the second segment But first, we're going to be reviewing a sci-fi film that's been making some waves lately and which was actually on my most anticipated films of the spring and summer, Claire Denis' High Life. So I'm really really looking forward to talking about this with you, Dave. Um, I'm I'm excited to talk about it, too. We had a chance to actually see the film with Claire Denis um, at uh, an appearance here in Chicago. with uh, A24 doing sort of a tour of the universities in uh, in uh, in the United States rather than just promoting it in a kind of a standard way with word of mouth screenings. And uh, it was such a pleasure to sit there and, uh, you know, with one of the world's greatest living film uh, uh, directors talking about approaching science fiction for the first time. Oh, I, w- I really wish I could have been there. I wasn't I wasn't able to make that screening. I saw it was happening and it, it must have been really something. <laughs> It really was. You know, she is uh, a person of um, carefully chosen words, and she really was not interested in uh, hyping herself. She was far more interested in getting down to sort of the brass tacks of the process of making the movie and of what the movie was about and sort of resisted 
attempts by the audience and the uh, people that were moderating the discussion to, you know, talk about her as kind of a living icon or anything like that. Yeah. Well, it is a really, it's a really unique film in a lot of ways. It, it, yeah. it has a lot of, of influences and genre markers that are easily identifiable, but it doesn't really fall into, into boxes the, the way you might expect of a, of a more straightforward genre film. Oh, you're absolutely right. I think, you know, Besides the fact that it's, uh, you use the word in your notes, achronological, which I love. I have a new word, achronological. It's, you know, <laughs> it makes me sound so smart. But the idea of telling this story kind of in a back and forth manner, uh, in time and, you know, relating that to the fact that they are on their way to a black hole, which is affecting their perception of time, um, and examining not you know, all of these sort of science fiction tropes that we think of, but really the relationships between the people on that ship and the things that are driving them as they interrelate with others. Uh, you know, th- that's where I felt her influence is the strongest. Mm-hmm. Um, probably the, the single biggest influence for me that I caught from her uh, in, in uh, even the look of the film was um, Solaris. For sure, for um, sure. And that's a film you're familiar with, right? Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah. You know, you have the garden. You definitely have the idea of being revisited by your choices in life um, and the idea of encountering an aspect of the natural world that isn't explainable necessarily, but that draws you in spiritually. And um, in a lot of ways, I think that High Life is a film about, uh, and this was pointed out to me by my podcast partner, Mike Cockrell, in, during our episode of uh, 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 on High Life. Um, th- this is pretty much a film about hope. And, uh, and it really didn't strike me until he said that, how true that is. That as they journey towards this black hole, which a black hole is not something you normally associate with hope, uh, you definitely um, realize that their journey is what brings them to sort of an inevitability, an, inev- an inevitability of having to accept the idea that there's something hopeful mm-hmm. going on there. Yeah, this is, uh, before we, we go a little bit farther, I guess we could be a little achronological ourselves in case uh, any of our listeners didn't listen to the episode where I read the very singular uh, plot synopsis for for this film, which was what really got me excited about it in the first place. I'll read it here now just so we can really kind of all get on the same page. So this is a film starring uh, Robert Pattinson as an astronaut named Monty, about whom we know, we come to learn a little bit more about his background over the course of the film. But as the film opens, Monty and his baby daughter are the last survivors of a damned and dangerous mission to the outer reaches of the solar system. They must now rely on each other to survive as they hurtle toward the oblivion of a black hole. So that is, by itself, just a really attention-grabbing synopsis. And going into the film, you kind of think that you might expect something a little bit more... Um, I don't know, something more along the lines of, of an alien or, um, uh, 
or maybe even uh, even maybe a silent running. Yeah, you or know something some, like that. Yeah, where where it's you think you know what it's going to be kind of like this suspense story about survival in outer space, and there is that dimension to it. But there's a lot more on Denis' mind than just sort of running us through the familiar paces of a space survival film. This is a movie that's interested in you know issues of scientific ethics of of the value of human life and of hope like you mentioned earlier and it really finds interesting and maybe circuitous paths to that uh to each of those those um those thematic explorations well every everybody's choices in this movie affects other people's choices and i think something that the movie does a very good job with is showcasing that but not at the expense uh, of giving you clear indication of why those characters are making those choices. And you go from feeling characters are maybe irredeemable to possibly redeemable or understandable. You you enter into that great thing that Roger Ebert said that for him at the end of his life was really what cinema was all about. And that was... This is a, a film about empathy, and you are given the opportunity to have empathy for a group of people who have basically been cast out um, by society into space, uh, lied to, um, you know, given the indication that, well, maybe you can come back someday when really that is not the case, and watching them go on this journey we all go towards, which is our own black holes and deciding what's going to be on the other end of that. Uh, and I think that that is so beautifully done in the film. And it even raises questions. You know, you talk about some of the issues it raises. What about what about prison uh, uh, culture in the United States? Um, it, it, you know, in the background of this movie, I think, is the money that's deciding why these people have been cast off. And there's, there's even that uh, kind of a, a signature Denis moment where we get... Uh, sort of the mastermind for the space mission. He's on a commuter train or a train of some sort, and he's having an interview with somebody where he's talking about the scheme to send these prisoners to outer space, which is, we've seen Denis films before where there has been this interest in shooting two people sitting on uh, public or on some sort of transportation like a train and having a conversation while the world races by past them, past outside their window. And it really, in this case, is used to reflect kind of the almost dispassionate way that the society thinks of these people that they put inside these spaceships and shoot out into space to see if they can... Well, and you talk about dispassionate, and you know one of the big things in this movie is passion. And dealing with the the nature of how human beings connect to one another, not just socially, but sexually. And there is uh, a very graphic exploration of that. And there's a, there's a very graphic exploration of that uh, in the moment where we see the Juliette Binoche character enter into this room that exists in the spacecraft for no other reason than for people to be sexually pleasured by this machine. 
uh, and ostensibly, you know, to pleasure themselves. But it's mentioned in, you know, during the, the course of the film um, that you don't get what you go in there looking for, but everybody goes in there. Mm-hmm. There's something so like really human about that, the, the being drawn to this very, very impersonal, uh, very disquieting uh, release in, in that room looking for something and not getting what you want out of it, but you can't keep, you, you can't keep yourself from uh, being drawn towards that. It's almost as if Denis is commenting on the, the impulse towards, towards sin or ter- towards satisfying human appetites that, that all people have that uh, they're, they're all drawn to this, this room and yet, it, there, there's nothing really very satisfying about it. And the way that Denise shoots it is very, very disquieting, very up, uh, uh, unsettling in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think so. You know, it, it occurred to me while I was watching it that um, Denis could have approached this by simply having, you know, scenes in which various characters pleasure themselves. Um and maintain that sort of human element, even if it's a very isolated one. But she's choosing in this film to uh, inject, um, pun not intended, the the uh, you know idea of this machine, and the idea of having something done for you. And there's an almost disconnected quality um, into something that is far more disquieting and far less. Um, understandable and and more, you know, outwardly objectionable, you know, not the idea that there might be a device out there somewhere that, you know, helps someone to enjoy sexual pleasure, but the idea that that's all there is on the ship. And one of the reasons that's all there is on the ship is because the Benoche character is running around trying to artificially inseminate everybody so that she can create a baby. Um, and every baby that she creates ends up getting fried by radiation on the journey. Um, so she has this maternal, warped maternal drive that's the focus of her experiments. And yet... She, too, goes into the box. And, in fact, she seems to want to go into the box more than anyone else. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about Binoche's character. Because, as you mentioned, she has some very, very disturbing um, motivations in this film. She's uh, driven to create life, but to create life in a way that is manifestly unnatural. Uh, Denis really seems to be exploring the, the true horrors of what happens when, when humans... Uh, for for lack of a better term, try to play God when they try to create life on their terms and to live life on their terms. And Benoche's character is almost that idea in in you know embodied and, and given flesh that she's the one who is most obsessed with making sure that we can reproduce while in space. And yet, her methods for doing it are absolutely savage and the consequences of it are also very brutal as well as you mentioned the, most of the babies don't survive until robert pattinson's character becomes involved and they finally manage to produce a healthy child which in some ways is his 
salvation or at least his way toward growing past and persevering through the the really brutal conditions aboard this spaceship well and if and again to look at the when we talk about the savagery of her methods you know on one level it sounds like simple artificial insemination but in reality what she's doing is these you know women are being strapped down at night and uh, they're being uh inseminated by the sperm of men that's been collected in assembly line fashion by Benoche in the most impersonal possible way and not for the creation of families, uh, uh, nuclear families, mm -hmm. um, but uh, or families at all or uh, to create a baby because two people want a baby. It's, it's almost like she, she wants to do it because she can, not because there's... There's something that she that is really you find being out, generative and 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 good about it. Yeah, you find out later on about her own wounds and her own journey, and I think the film does a really good job of of creating some empathy around her own struggle. But this sort of almost rape that's going on with the way the experiments are done um, becomes de facto rape. At one point, when she collects Robert Pattinson's sperm absolutely without his consent um, while he's sleeping. And um, I forget if she even doses him with something to help him not wake up or not. But it's interesting. Uh, and, of course, there's another attempted rape on the ship. So the metaphor is very clear in the film that there's this sexual sort of violence going on that is complete, com almost completely anti-personhood. Um, and, and it's all centered around the way that Benoche's character's um, uh, instincts have been warped uh, for for love. You know, we find out about the Benoche character that, um, you know, signals um, an immense amount of guilt for her. And her desire to create life in outer space suddenly takes on new meaning. Um but it doesn't mitigate the fact that what she does to get there ends up creating a, 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 a really almost costing everyone on the ship their lives. Um, and it's uh, it, it, it's it's such an interesting character arc. I almost I, I almost wish they had ignored the Pattinson character a little bit. Oh, I, I, I can't. I don't know if I would go that far. I think he's great in the really, film. Pattinson is really good in this film. Really. Playing kind of the way his character is is developed in this film is he's almost um he's called the monk that's a, a nickname that he picks up from the other passengers and the reason is is that he while the other characters are drawn towards this uh, this machine that that pleasures them he chooses not to he chooses to abstain and at one point even in voiceover he says this is um. This is this is something that that makes me powerful. Or I, I I become I become stronger by not by through abstinence through not letting myself be drawn into this very anti life uh, view of of existence and the seeing him kind of go from this impassive character who's almost aloof from everybody to a character who does become close to the child that he has while in space is 
is really great. And I mean, honestly, for me, I could have watched an entire film of just him and his daughter on that ship trying to, you know, trying to figure out what even a human life looks like and under those circumstances. Well, and if you get down to say, quote, you know, what is Denis doing with all these characters? What's the point, if you will? One of the things that struck me about this film is all of these people are on this ship, presumably because they did things to get on the ship. This is a prison ship. Um, and even even the people who are perhaps less guilty or, or you know, provably innocent of something that they have supposedly done that is meant they wound up on the ship, have chosen to go on the ship rather than just sit at home in jail uh, or be executed or whatever their fate was going to be. And what we watch all of these people do on the ship is go through the inevitabilities of life. And Denis, to me, and this is very challenging for, I think, a Christian mindset. Um, Denis is um, challenging the idea that we can live our version in our heads of the perfect life. And that instead we are called to live our imperfect lives and to continue to have hope in the middle of that. Hmm. And we go, we might go through horrible things in life. We might go through rape. We might go through, um, we might do something awful that makes the rest of society reject us. We might be confronted with responsibilities we don't want the way that Robert Pattinson is confronted with suddenly having to take care of and raise this, this little girl. We will probably fail at any number of those things. Is that a reason then to give up hope? And I think this film says no. And so this film isn't counting up the, uh, the the things that make us guilty. It's counting up the things that lead us away from our guilt mm-hmm. towards something bigger and better. Yeah, and that's, for, for all this, I, I mean, as listeners can probably guess from the kinds of things we've been discussing over the course of this segment, this is not a, by any means, this is not an all-ages film. This is a very adult film. And it does have some you know, content in it that I wouldn't necessarily recommend for people with certain sensitivities. It's a very violent film. It's a very sexually explicit film. But for those who uh, have the the ability to uh, engage with this film, it does have a lot to say uh, along those lines about uh, the value of human life, not just in terms of, you know, obviously we should um, honor prisoners as human beings and the the creation of life within the womb is also a very sacred and uh, very human oriented task. Those are all part of it. But even beyond that, Denis does seem to be making some points about how the ultimate destination that they arrive at is not one that is uh, predicated on the bad things that came before. Yeah, in other words, you don't have the... I, I don't think you know what happens at the end of this film. But yeah, let's I, talk about that, actually. <laughs> let's talk about the... <laughs> no spoilers, obviously, but this is this is an ending that does kind of leave 
some things ambiguous, and I'm kind of curious to talk about it a little bit more. Well, okay, we know that the film, we've already told you that the film is about this journey towards this black hole. Uh, ostensibly, the idea is that the prisoners are going to do experiments that tell the people back home whether or not energy can be harnessed from a black hole, and that would irrevocably change life on Earth for the good. Um, we also get the impression that's a bit of little bit of uh, hokum, and that really they're just being sent out to die because society is done with them. The um, so this is kind of a hey, this might work. We're going to send you guys out. Good luck kind of thing. Ultimately, that ship is going to end up in that black hole. Um, that's something the movie's pretty clear about. So what then is the point of any of this if everybody's going in the black hole? <laughs> well, you know, the, that's the question philosophers and theologians um, of all stripes and types and, and, and mindsets have been trying to ask for forever. And I think that what Denis is doing is saying, you don't know. Now, that's very disconcerting for Christians to hear. We do not want to hear that we don't know. We want to talk about assurance. Or, or even just humans in general. Like, yes. Nobody, nobody wants, nobody's really comfortable with being in the dark about things. Exactly. And yet, Denis clearly puts her characters in the literal driver's seat in this film. On that journey, on that journey towards that black hole, and rather than tell us what's on the other side of that black hole for them, gives us a sense of triumph at the end of the film, or or at least of peace. Uh, I, I, of peace and true human connection. Yes, yes, true. That's. That's a good point. And it reminded me a lot of the ending from Tarkovsky's Solaris, circling back around to, to that mention. What an at the ending. end at the end of Solaris, of course, you know, the, the space station spoiler alert for a forty year old movie. The, <laughs> the the space station, you know, is is breaking up and our main character finds himself uh in a moment sort of from his past, and he is embraced by his father at the very end. And the ambiguity of that moment is, is it imagined? Is, is How literal is this happy ending that we're seeing? Well, and in Tarkovsky's place, he's given you a sentient planet mm-hmm. that can do these projections for people of figures from their past. And we've seen that character go through a series of um, meetings with doppelgangers of his ex-wife to the point where he can begin to embrace his own responsibility for her suicide. Mm -hmm. And in the end, he chooses to stay on Solaris, which creates this little island for him on which is this house that his father lived in. And we know there's been some tension between him and the father, and he is reconnected with the father. And so Tarkovsky is finding the locus of spirituality in the deeper, uh, uh, more deeply in the human connection than in some supernatural thing. Yes, the supernatural is all around them. Yes, they're on Solaris. But ultimately, he's back in the home. 
that he, I guess, maybe grew up in or where his dad lives. And he's embracing his dad. Yeah, that human connection. Similar to what Denis is doing in this film, too. Where, again, there's that kind of almost, not me, not, well, it depends on how you read it. Perhaps a transcendent-ish moment of, of where human connection is sort of the culmination of their journey. Where there's some sort of connection forged or maybe consummated where they... Um, we don't know how it's resolved, but it does feel as if it's reached a culmination of some sort. Well, and you're left with the idea of two people who have been at loggerheads and in a state uh, uh, quite the opposite of peace with one another. Finding peace with one another. And out of that, something deeply spiritual is going on. And to, you know... Riff back onto the Denis film, you have a group of, you know, uh, disposable individuals. Some of them very antisocial individuals, yeah. too, that we come to see. And is there anything more disposable in our culture than people with problems? Not really. I mean, we 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 would love to be spiritual people, but if it just weren't for the people... <laughs> that we have to deal with all around us every day. And this idea of the lone monk, if you will, that uh, the Pattinson character plays uh, <laughs> is pretty, pretty funny when you think about it. Here's this guy. He's been cast out into the middle of nowhere. And his answer is to just completely isolate himself from everybody. You know, kind of like nanny, nanny, cuckoo. I'm going to sit in my bunk and just, you know, ignore everybody. Uh, almost, I I think that this is about being called out, called back to the to the hurt, back to the the the, the hard times, and that through the submission to healing of that, something deeper emerges, and that's the true locus of spirituality. That's the true locus of redemption. Is redemption isn't just you. Redemption is also me. And redemption is that person over there that you can't get along with. And this person over there who has some noxious, noxious view of the world or has done something awful that they don't know how to make up for. Um, and, and, I, and I find that so deeply amazing and, 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 and uplifting and uh, so surprising coming from Denis. I mean, if you've seen trouble every day or you know some of Denny's films that this is this is a little bit of a different of a different approach for her yeah there's so much to dig into with this film I feel like in a lot of ways we've only scratched the surface but it's a thought-provoking film for sure not for everybody but definitely has some really heady themes going on listeners that is our review of Claire Denis High Life if you get the chance to see this film and want to share your theories, your thoughts on what Denis is doing with this story, please let us know. You can always email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com, or you can send us a tweet at cbelievepod. As always, we would love to hear your thoughts on that. Don't go anywhere in our second segment. Coming up, we're going to be talking about Hail Satan. This evening I shared 
We just want to thank everyone who sticks with us week in and week out. We really appreciate all of you who listen. Uh, We also appreciate all of you who listened to our big episode from last week. As you can recall, a little film called Avengers Endgame came out, and pretty much everybody in the Western Hemisphere saw it. We did ask for any feedback from you. Just wanted to share something that Kyle the Mad Titan, if that is his real name, wrote in to say. He said that Endgame is a love letter to the fans who have kept coming back to the MCU over the past decade. It's been worth the wait. And that's a sentiment that seems to be pretty common among uh, most of the people who write in and who we've talked to over the past week. Avengers Endgame made all the money and made all the fans happy, or at least so it seems. So thanks, Kyle, so much for writing in. I also want to throw out a plug for our Patreon campaign. With Wade not here, it doesn't seem quite right to share something you can buy for $5 this week, but I do want to share a special little thing that we put up on the Patreon page for all of our subscribers. As some of you know from listening to the episode last week, we did record a spoiler-free episode for uh, the bulk of Seeing and Believing Nation, but we also wanted a chance to dig deeper into the film and maybe talk about some plot points that could be described as spoilers. So we recorded a second segment, and that segment is, of course, available to all of our faithful Patreon subscribers. If you want access to that episode yourself, all you have to do is become a subscriber. Start at $3 level and go all the way up to $25 a month. So there's plenty of wiggle room. If you want to throw a few of your hard-earned dollars our way, We would love to have it, and we'd love to make that spoiler episode available for you. So if you haven't, head on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. There you can learn more about supporting us. And of course, if you do just want to write in to tell us what you thought about Avengers, High Life, or Hail Satan, you can shoot us an email at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or shoot us a tweet at cbelievepod on Twitter. We're back on the second segment of Seeing and Believing, and Dave, I, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of like looking for something a little bit lighter after that really deep dive into <laughs> the the sex and death and heady spiritual themes of Denise High Life. That was a that was a little bit of a trip. And what I feel like be, I went on an outer space journey. And well, what could be lighter than Satanism? I, yeah. I you know. <laughs> 
you know, when we come up with the episode slate that we're going to do, like the movies we're going to review, uh, we, we do try to kind of like pair movies that have something in common uh, with with each other if we can. And it kind of worked out this week that we're just going to be talking about uh, existential space travels and also Satanism. That just happened to be the way the the breakdown worked uh, worked this week, <laughs> which technically would mean we'd be talking about Event Horizon, but but uh, no, we actually have a documentary here well, we're going to talk about. We we do we do do uh, retro reviews every now and then, but <laughs> we'll we'll stick with the documentary for now. So, Hail Satan is the latest documentary from Penny Lane. It traces the rise of the Satanic Temple, which has been making headlines recently with its unapologetic commitment to tweaking the nose of those who are in power. As portrayed in the film, the Satanic Temple is only six years old and already one of the most controversial religious movements in American history. The temple and its enigmatic leader, Lucian Greaves, are calling for a Satanic revolution to save the nation's soul. But Penny Lane's documentary explores the question of are they for real so dave this is a really unique look at a minority a religious minority in contemporary american life that has been making a lot of waves and for fairly obvious reasons has received very strong pushback from those who are used to thinking of Satan as an evil figure. I think you uh, you and I can both agree Satan is an evil figure, but what's interesting about this film is the way the Satanic tape Temple articulates their support for certain qualities that they identify with the figure of Satan. So you kind of did contribute to a book related to the Satanic Panic, and uh, I'm really curious to know how when you saw this documentary from Penny Lane, I'm curious to know how the film challenged or maybe confirmed what you thought already about the Satanic Temple and what you thought about the film's portrait of religious practice in general. Well, to answer this question, I should probably first start with um, the period of time where I was writing for Cornerstone Magazine. Uh, I was kind of a junior cub reporter right at the time when they started doing exposés of uh, people who had claimed to have been involved in the occult. And that necessarily led to a lot of reading and research on the history of the occult in America. And if you trace the Church of Satan back to um, Anton LaVey uh, in modern times. Which who appears in this film. Who does, yes, who does appear in this film. Uh, briefly, not he's dead. He doesn't actually appear in the film, but... <laughs> Um, that would be a pretty cool trick if yeah. you had a religion and you could just make your dead figure just appear on camera. But um, the thing you find out about LaVey is LaVey was an ex-carnival barker. And he created a sensationalized, very chic uh, version of Satanism that borrowed elements that you would associate uh, with devil movies and things like that to sort of make it appear sort of sexy. Uh, in in L.A. And he gathered sort of celebrities around himself and it became a very kind of cool thing to associate yourself with. Um, people that got involved with that then had offshoots of that. Um, and one of them is uh, one that's not really gotten into much 
that's called the Temple of Set, uh, which was more or less run by a guy named Michael Aquino. He's probably the most famous um, person that was associated with with running it. Uh, it's still around, although albeit it's pretty small. Uh, and neither one of those permutations of, quote, the Church of Satan or Satanism believed in the devil um, or worshipped the devil. Uh, and so that is a, a thing that we still encounter in the public consciousness, this idea that there are Satanists out there that worship the devil. And where we get this idea is from popular culture. So now we have this new group called the Temple of Satan that also does not worship the devil. They don't believe in the actual devil. And they run their organization on a series of tenets. And I think what the movie does a very good job of is letting them self-identify and also of kind of demystifying the idea of, of, of what Satanism is. I contributed a chapter to a book, and this brings us all the way forward to your question. Uh, and the book was called Satanic Panic, Pop Cultural Paranoia in the 1980s. It was from Spectacular Optical. You can still get it from them. Uh, and then it was picked up by Fab Press if you want a really nice hardcover version of it. And my chapter had to do with the in investigative expose I was involved in of a character uh, who had claimed to be a uh, Satanist high priest and have a 1,200 member coven. And later he became an evangelist and he went around gathering money uh, <laughs> for, you know, satanic ritual abuse victims that uh, seemed to never really wind up getting used for anything, except that, you know, this person lived a fairly uh, lavish lifestyle. Um, they're still out there, by the way, doing their thing. They lost their deal with a Christian record company and a book project. Um, and that's sort of the story of of that kind of Satanism. And so you wind up with this very, very strange um, thing in American culture where there's this urban myth and everyone everyone believes it. That, that mentality um, leads to institutionalizing within society this idea of for, for one of a better term, um, Christian democracy, where we begin to look at America as if it's a Christian nation and not just a nation. And that's and that's kind of where uh, Penny Lane's documentary uh, picks up, is looking at the Satanic Temple primarily as, um, as almost a, a political activism group in that they... Uh, seek to confront that kind of preferential treatment of Christianity, at least in some parts of the nation, uh, and confront that by saying, well, if America is supposed to show no preference for religion, well, then surely you can't exclude a eight-foot-tall statue of Baphomet from being set up right next to the Ten Commandments. So in some ways, the, the, the Satanic Temple is less of a religious organization, at least in its uh, at its genesis and more of a movement to expose what what they see as hypocrisy within both the American church and just the American political system writ large, where there's a refusal to recognize how some groups uh, do receive slightly preferential treatment over other groups. But what I think is interesting about Lane's documentary as it goes on is 
it begins to chart the evolution of the Satanic Temple from a an organization where the members are kind of, you know, they buy Halloween costumes, literal Halloween costumes. This is something that Lane documents is they buy, you know, something from a, you know, from Halloween store, some horns, and they put those on and they hold a press conference. And the idea is to use uh, publicity in a way that's almost like the bizarro version of the satanic panic of the 80s, where the uh, the worries about Satanists were kind of weaponized by uh, some reactionary types. The Satanic Temple seeks to use that kind of media power in service of pushing back against that same impulse. Yeah, and the odd thing is that they're not doing that with an agenda to, you know, convince everybody to go out and do bad things. When you read their seven tenets, they are really pretty benign um, and positive. And the again, these are the seven tenets that Lucian Graves um, and his followers have all agreed on that form sort of the backbone of this new incarnation of uh, Satanism called... Um, the temple of Satan. Um, they even at one point are asked, you know, well, why call it Satan? Why, why, why use the term Satan? And they say it's specifically to push back against this other, you know, larger force that's kind of become dominant uh, in America, sort of this, this paranoia that, you know, we are no longer a Christian nation. We are getting away from our roots. God is, you know, going to curse the land and come down and, and, and throw, you know, I don't know, serpents or frogs or whatever else God throws these days uh, in those in those religious circles. Uh, <laughs> it uh, it definitely seems like the uh, Satan as a figure, he's he's sort of emptied, the, at least by in the way that the satanic temple uses him as a figure. He's almost emptied of all of his baggage except as an oppositional force. And that's something that I, I found really interesting about the way that the documentary portrays the Satanic Temple is that they're not they're not a religion in the sense that they they see some sort of spiritual power in Satan, which is as Christians, that's what we think of as the occult, and that's what's the the really scary bad stuff is, right? The the idea that you spiritually align yourself with the darker forces in uh, explicit opposition to God Himself. Whereas with the Satanic Temple, they seem to see it more as uh, Satan as a as a sim as a symbolic figure who has no real world referent. He's just a symbol of somebody who fights against uh, those who would seek to dominate or control. And that's kind of well, how they conceive of him. This goes back to popular understandings of the devil. Um, you know, Lucian Graves is no intellect, no intellectual lightweight. The guy went to Harvard. He stuttered, studied. Um, he stuttered? No, I don't think he stuttered. He studied, uh, um, what was it, neuroscience? And he graduated from Harvard. Uh, this is a this is a successful human being uh, by 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 those types of standards, and he, you know, it was aware I think of Blake and Paradise Lost, and this romantic notion of the devil um, 
feeling unjustly accused by God. Yeah, there's that that whole uh, and being a rebel line you know? of line of thought that uh, the Satan of Milton's Paradise Lost is is almost the hero of the epic. He's the guy who gets all the cool lines and the, yeah, the one that the the poem begins with him and he's giving all these grand speeches. And there's kind of this line of criticism about that poem that says Satan's the real hero of Paradise Lost, uh, as at least as as you read it now, regardless of whether Milton intended him that way. And Greaves kind of taps into that a little bit, right? He tries to um, take that idea that we all kind of want to root for the underdog, so to speak, and, and kind of using that in a way to... Uh, point out very real inequities in in the the systems around him well i think that i think the interesting thing about the history of religion in the united states and this would apply to all the various incarnations of satanism that we've talked about is that you know they um start and then there's a schism and then someone goes off with their idea of of how this ought to be done and then someone else gets us off of that and if you look at Lucian Graves, you know, he was at, at one time, I believe, they had some connection to the Church of Satan. But, you know, historically, um, you know, I'm the boss, applesauce, understand rubber band has been kind of the way that religion has worked often in the United States in various uh, incarnations and definitely in, in Satanism. Um, and you have figures like Michael Aquino or Anton LaVey or uh, relatives of LaVey wanting to be the, the figureheads and wanting to like be out there and, and kind of wield the power, if you will. Um, Graves seems to have gone the opposite route here. He's involved other people in, in, in this. And so I don't think his idea, his core idea of wanting to utilize the underdog Blakeian idea of the devil is just self-serving. I, I think he uh, is an intellectually geared person who does seem to care about, you know, trying to make the world a, 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 a more rational place. And, um, he feels he's fighting something that's profoundly irrational, and that's really hard to argue with. It is. It is interesting how. Um, so over the course of the documentary, uh, Lane interviews not just Graves himself, but also uh, the people who have been attracted to the Satanic Temple's message and have uh, essentially become adherents. It's a little bit nebulous exactly what it takes to join the Satanic Temple, uh, because it's not like they have, you know, uh, particular sacraments or a whole lot of organizational structure in the same way that we think of, say, the, the Christian church having it. But people do join. And Lane interviews a few of them, and one of them specifically says that what drew him to the Satanic Temple was looking at uh, the the way that uh, the Christians in his upbringing behaved towards towards other people and towards the culture at large around them. And he says, quote, I want to be the opposite of what these people are. He's essentially drawn to the Satanic Temple specifically as, a, as an impulse to not be the 
like Christians, which is, I think, should be a very convicting moment for any Christian watching this documentary and realizing just how, when we talk about our witness being harmed, the there are very real consequences to that. It's not just a nebulous thing. It's like real, actual people deciding to become almost as far away from the church as possible as a reaction specifically to what they've seen or or what they've experienced i mean i think i think that an an interesting thing let's take a group like uh, a white power group all right um so a white power group uses various tactics to draw people in uh we've seen you know obviously the use of music and bands to sort of draw people into movements like that um pop culture to draw people into movements like that. But those people are being drawn into those movements and groomed towards a definably antisocial purpose. Something that is clearly um, on the dark end of the moral spectrum. In this case, it's more, like you said, it's reactionary. But it's also saying... Look, I I haven't given up on human community. I haven't given up on wanting um, to live life uh, um, meaningfully. Uh, and in the search and the, the existential questions that define a lot of that. I am interested to um, talk about the the extent to which Hail Satan, this documentary, delves into the, that kind of reasoning. The, 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 the various things that draw the members of the Satanic Temple to it. And the different ways also that they articulate and live out the, the principles that the Satanic Temple uh, claims to espouse. So there are those seven tenets, which as you observe, for the most part, are pretty like basic, you know, do seek justice um don't do bad things when you do do bad things try to make it right these these for the most part are fairly unobjectionable principles but the different ways that uh the members find of articulating those principles are very uh very far afield from each other in some cases there's a section of the film where we see uh, one of the leaders of the Detroit chapter of the Satanic Temple, uh, who goes by the name of Jex, who she is more of a um, rebel, a firebrand. Yes, uh, she and the way that she interprets these tenets of the Satanic Temple are to go out and and break down the systems that uh, are are. Uh, perceived as as oppressive. She's the Che Guevara of the of the the new Satanist movement. Yeah, or I'm I'm trying to think of a of a the 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 Christian equivalent because you know Christians, have, you know Christianity over its two thousand year history has also had like the firebrands who you know seek yeah. to you know go on a crusade she to establish to, the faith. She wants to upturn all the temples in the table or all the tables in the temple. And it's it's interesting that even in this uh, organization that does seek to be very very individualistic, doesn't seek to impose a lot of structures on the different ways that its members live out their devotion. It 
nevertheless encounters many of the problems that anyone who's been a member of, especially a Protestant church, yeah. would see. Like there, there are people who who disagree on the proper application of the quote unquote faith, and they split off and go their separate ways. It's fascinating, isn't it? I and and I really felt I really felt for Lucian at that moment. Like, oh, you're in now, it now. Now you, now you know what, it, what it's like to be there a Protestant. You, you know, you, every, everybody wants to do it their own their own way, but. I think that that's it. Well, it brings up okay. It one of the things I love about this documentary is number one, it's really funny. It's very, very funny. And one of the reasons it's funny is because these particular Satanists do not take themselves so seriously that they don't understand there's a humorous element. And to them, the most humorous thing of all is the idea that they might actually be able to get a court to say that you have to put this eight. If you're going to put the Ten Commandments here in front of a courthouse, you've also got to put a statue of Baphomet with two kids looking lovingly up at Baphomet. Um, and if you don't know what Baphomet is, it's this massive goat-headed figure with a pentagram in the back that clearly look, looks like something you'd see in a horror movie. And that's where they play it a little fast and loose because all the sacramental aspects of this new Satanism are lifted straight out of horror movies, which were modeled after Catholic expression of Christian faith and sacramental uh, uh, expression of Christian faith. That, that's something that, you know, I... I if, which if also a, ticks off Protestants to no end. If there's a if there's a problem that I had with this documentary, is I really wish it would have delved even deeper into what exactly the day-to-day practice of Satanism looks like for these for these various people. We know, yeah. of course, about the, the grand gestures. What's a gathering look like? What's a what, what's Yeah, what, what do their gatherings like? look like? What, uh, you know, how does a person uh, who wakes up in the morning and they're a Satanist and they, they're just like, well, I'm going about my day. How does that change their lives? How does that make them different from, say, for example, an atheist? There's a really interesting quote uh, from... Uh, one of the interviewed Satanists who says, being an atheist is boring. There's no iconography. <laughs> and that's what drew him to the Satanic Temple is he's like, I don't believe in Satan. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in any supernatural beings. But there's still kind of this impulse that draws him towards there needs to be some sort of sense of ritual, of iconography. There's something that is still drawing him towards that, even though he rejects the supernatural uh underpinnings of those rituals. And I found that to be really fascinating. I wish that the film had taken the time to really dig down even deeper into that sort of sentiment and, and discover what what are these people doing when they're not uh, attending a rally or well, pulling would, a publicity it would make a great It would make a great TV show. I mean, and not a... Not a not a, you know, real housewives of the Temple <laughs> real, of Satan. Real, real Satanists of Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills. But... But a TV show where you examine the historical stuff that's gone on. You know, my my initial like little spiel at the beginning of all this was was kind of I thought kind of rambled. But what I was getting at is that there are things that lead to things that lead to things that lead to things, and they're all inextricably intertwined. If you want to get where these guys are coming from, we have um, sort of this. Im- 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 monolithic edifice of of 
Christian influence on public policy in the United States. Or at least like a, a cultural Christianity where it's, yeah. it's almost yes. rooted more in civic religion rather than rather than specifically like very churchy religion. And it's every bit as devout and intense and unwielding as um as the as the most zealous you know, aspect of any of, of, of any religion you've ever seen. Uh, and I think what these guys are doing is they're kind of thumbing their nose at that a little bit. And they're using all the paraphernalia to do that. But the paraphernalia at the end of the day doesn't really matter to them except as it relates to the things that draw them to the idea of religion in the first place. And the things that draw them to the idea of religion don't really seem that different than what draws everybody to, you know, religions, be it Islam or Christianity or Judaism um, uh, the, the or, yearning, or whatever. Yeah, the, the yearning for God in them is almost like translated into a desire for ritual, but not wanting uh, some of the other trappings of the cultural Christianity that they've witnessed around to them. Well, and they talk about it quite a bit in the documentary, a yearning for human community. That is true. That if someone says that they love you, they act like it. If they harm you, they say they're sorry. That you can build something on your involvement with that credo, with that faith, with that, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, list of tenants or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's so much to, to explore about, about what the motivations are behind these people. I guess with this documentary, I never really felt like I got fully behind the goat headed mask. Shall we say there was, there was a lot. There are a lot of questions that I was left still asking. So that even though I felt better informed about the Satanic Temple's aims, I'm not sure that I really understand what it means to be a Satanist, which, or at least what it means to be a Satanic Temple Satanist. I'm not sure I, I really want to go like a diet in the wool, genuine hail Satan. I'm. You know, I'm serving the Dark Lord. I'm not sure I want to go that far behind the veil. But the, you know, the average rank and file member of the Satanic Temple, I really would be interested to get a little bit below the surface with with the people who are interviewed in this documentary. And I felt like... You sound like you're drawn to your own, in your own way, to to the iconography. Because you're doing exactly what people have always done with religion. I want to understand what Judaism is. Well, we get an 11 part, you know, documentary on PBS and you leave it and you go, well, I still, I don't know. I still don't know. I don't have that clear picture as I want. You never get the clear picture, I think. And that's part of the pull of religion is as soon as you think you have it all figured out, um, then it just becomes a social norm. But if the mystery is maintained in it and the 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 existential questions remain vibrant within it the uh, the, the the search for meaning becomes stays vibrant within it then it uh, then if you will 
you're satisfied to do to link it back to Denis, you're you're in the in High Life, which is the other movie that we covered. You know, you you realize that maybe a lot of this is about the journey. Maybe a lot of this is about the here and the now and not not knowing everything there is to know about how it looks or how it functions or, you know, everybody's yeah. story about why they want to be involved in it. Yeah, I can. I, I even so, <laughs> even so, I find myself I find myself wishing eh, I feel like Penny Lane at some point at some points plays a little bit more coy than, than I would have liked, but. You know, perhaps that's the fate of being a Christian watching a documentary about Satanism. There's a certain, <laughs> there's only so far that uh, my imagination will allow me to go. But that, I guess, is unless, our... Unless you're a Christian horror movie fan like me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll, we'll leave it there. That is, listeners, that is our review of Penny Lane's new documentary, Hail Satan. It is going to its wider release this weekend, and hopefully we'll be expanding to more theaters and to streaming release later on. If you get the chance to see this movie, please let us know what you think of it. You can always email or tweet us, as we mentioned earlier in the episode. But for now, Dave, we are going to close out this episode with a segment that usually closes our episodes. So I'm curious, Dave, uh, what recommendation from the world of television or film did you bring to share with our listeners today? Well, you kind of got me hamstrung here because on the one side we have philosophical sci-fi and on the other we have... Satanism. Satanism. (laughs) And I'm a horror movie fan whose twin fascinations are God and horror movies. So um, on the existential side and on the science fiction side, I would definitely encourage all of your listeners. There are two science fiction films that I think are absolutely so important to understand um, science fiction as a, as a 21st century existential um, medium. And that is Moon by Duncan Jones. It's a good one. Fantastic film. Uh, uh, starring Sam Rockwell uh, about a man who's alone on the moon, or so he thinks. Uh, and the film Annihilation, which came out last year and I think was grotesquely under um, under box office, under recognition. Under under everything. Underappreciated, for sure. Fantastic film based on a really interesting series of books uh, starring Natalie Portman as somebody who goes into a kind of a mystical place that's just crept up on earth that they think is of alien origin. And uh, she is looking for her lost husband. It is a fantastic, fantastic uh, film Uh, and also pretty scary in spots. Um, Leading me to my devil picks. Um, Satanism in the movies uh, has been handled lots of different ways. We've seen a proliferation of exorcism flicks. We've seen um, movies that treat the subject very s- s- uh, sincerely, almost preciously. And then and then we have movies um, like they used to make in the 1970s. With the uh, a- exception of The Exorcist, which is a great and very serious film about the nature of faith that I would encourage any Christian to see. Uh, there's a marvelous movie that I think really embodies 
uh, the spirit of the documentary Hail Satan and would make a great documentary uh, and feature film double feature. And that is the film The Devil's Reign. The Devil's Reign is the story of um, this cult that has um, taken over this kind of ghost town in in Texas and they are trying to get their property back from this family, which is linked to their rituals. Oh, say, so what, Dave? That just sounds like every other stupid movie. Yeah, but every other stupid Satanist movie doesn't have Ernest Borgnine turning into a half-man, half-goat creature. It doesn't have John Travolta in his first film role <laughs> with his face melting off, an eyeless John Travolta with his face melting off. William Shatner is sacrificed to the devil. All right. Tom Skerritt from Alien is the hero of this movie. And you also have um, Eddie Albert. That's right. Has a big role in it as sort of the guy who helps Tom Skerritt to beat the Satanists. Keenan Wynn from the D Disney movies is in it. Ida Lupino, one of the greatest female uh, directors ever and a star of the 1940s noir, film noir films is in it. Um, you just aren't going to have a better time at the movies uh, with the silliness of how silly occultism can be than you are at this movie. And to top it off, Anton LaVey was a project consultant on this film. So it ties it completely back in. So The Devil's Reign. I, I have to admit that was not on my radar before tonight, but I gotta say I'm pretty intrigued by a movie about the occult that has both John Travolta and William Shatner in it. Together, are they on screen at some point together? I, I want to know how their two acting I, styles. Uh, no, I, I don't mesh. think they are. John Travolta has a smaller role. Um, William Shatner is uh, in the first part of the film, uh, has a bigger role. Um, it's also worth noting that this film is directed by Robert Fust. Robert Fust uh, is the director of uh, a lot of great genre movies, including the abominable Dr. Fives. Dr. Fives rises again. He worked on the Avengers quite a bit. Um, he did a fantastic version of uh, Wuthering Heights. He did a great thriller called In Soon the Darkness. He did the final program. He, he's just a great director and a great sense of style. And he knew that what he had here was pure hokum and silliness. <laughs> and it just, it's just so funny. It's, you got to see it. And he treated it with, with the gravitas. With the gravitas that it that demanded. It, it demanded. Well, in that's... Fact, in fact, Lucian Graves, if you're out there and you're listening... I'm sure he is. I'm I sure will buy us both a pizza and a six-pack. Come on over and we'll do our own commentary. Well, if the leader of the... the devil's reign. If the leader of the satanic temple is listening to Seeing and Believing, and I don't see why he wouldn't be... Uh, take us up on that we'd we'd love to hear from you um my recommendation for this week is a little bit more sedate than, <laughs> than the devil's reign i i'm sorry to say it's not quite as as much of a blockbuster of of a of a pick but i was thinking while watching hail satan of the lauren greenfield documentary from 2012 the queen of versailles and as i was mentioning the 
big if I have a complaint about Hail Satan, it's that I didn't feel like it really got under the skin of the Satanic Temple in a way that permitted me to come to an understanding with with it in the fullness that I would have liked. The Queen of Versailles, by contrast, I think does that very well. It's this documentary that follows a timeshare uh, magnate and his trophy wife. Right after the economic crash of 2008, they are fabulously wealthy. They build this crazily opulent mansion that they model off of the real-life Versailles palace. And the movie really just kind of moves into their mansion and documents what it's like for an ultra-rich family to realize that they are no longer ultra-rich and they don't really know how to cope with life when that's not the case. I think it's a it's a fantastic documentary, not only for how it diagnoses the um, very specific kind of spiritual sickness that can befall somebody who has no needs other than making money, uh, it's also a very compassionate look at uh, somebody who is afflicted by by that and tries to find their way forward in a world that isn't fully understandable to them anymore. I think it's it's a really great film. You'll laugh sometimes, you'll cringe a lot more, but you'll come away from it, I think, understanding these people. And that's why I think it's a really great film. The Queen of Versailles, directed by Lauren Greenfield. I loved hearing you talk about that film. What a wonderful spiritual point of view about that film. I think that that is... <laughs> That's a really good encapsulation of that. It is uh, such a great documentary, and it's so fun. And yet, it doesn't have fun at the expense of the real human right. things that are going on in it. Yeah, it doesn't It doesn't encourage the audience to gawk at these people or to, or to hate them. It's not like a reality TV show, I guess. And I think that that's what I really appreciate about it. You know, there's a, there's a whole show you could do, I think, an episode on documentaries that wouldn't exist if it weren't for Errol Morris. Mm. And um, I think that that is one of them. That is one of those movies that no one would even think to make a documentary about someone like that. Um, if Errol Morris had come along and done Gates of Heaven and, you know, set that set that uh, up as a, a way of looking at people who are somewhat marginalized because in a lot of ways the characters in that documentary in Queen of Versailles are marginalized mm. by their own their own lives. Yeah, it's you know? interesting. I, I I wouldn't have thought of Morris uh in direct connection to it, but you're right that there are some parallel sets of interests, I guess, in the way that he chose his subjects and the way uh, Greenfield films hers. So, that's a, a really good point. Well, listeners, that is our episode for this week, episode 198. We've, we reviewed Satan documentaries. We reviewed existential sci-fi. We recommended a movie with William Shatner and John Travolta that involved sacrifice to the devil. And we recommended a documentary that is compassionate about the ultra-rich. We had everything for you. We hope you enjoyed 
it quite a bit as much as I enjoyed being with you, Dave. If uh, our listeners are wanting to check out some of your writing around the web or in print, do you have any new projects coming down the pike that you're really excited about? Yeah, I do. Uh, I'm actually working on something called Confessions of a Creature Feature Preacher. And again, it deals with the two twin fascinations of my life, uh, which are God and a horror film. And my interest in things like cryptozoology and scary movies and sci-fi and aliens and, and, and Kish. And what I am discovering is that the heart of that story is the need to accept myself uh, and to believe I have a place in the world. And I, I think that that is something people need to hear. And so I'm to that end, I'm writing a book and I'm also going to be launching out with my own um, um, blog and series of writings, probably on screen anarchy. Uh, other than that, you can continue to listen to me and my podcast partner, Mike Cockrell. Uh, you can go to iTunes and look up Mind Frames. And uh, we cover about two films a month. And we would uh, we would love to... Poach all you guys out there over. Come on. We are we are happy to to plug a fellow podcaster on our show. Thanks so much for coming on. And listeners, those uh, websites and podcasts come highly recommended from us as well. That is our show for this week. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us search for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McClinton. My guest for this week was Dave Canfield. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes, and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.